Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the uh, Al Franken podcast. We got a, a good one today for a change. Austin Goolsby who uh, is an economist. That's right, an economist. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, come on, Al. I don't care about the economy. Well, how about putting food on your family's table? Yeah, I'm more interested in sports, Al. Well, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. I like sports, too. But this is important, the economy. And and Austin Goolsby is a professor here at the uh, University of Chicago, a very esteemed uh, business school. And and this has uh, amazing history. Uh, Milton Friedman, for example, was uh, here. And we don't like him on the show. (laughs) We just don't like him. But you are the Robert Gwynn professor here at the the University of Chicago. I am. And and uh, you told me he the Encyclopedia Britannica. He's yeah, on the Robert, board of Robert that. When he ran the Encyclopedia Britannica company, and did he which die I, before the internet came? I think he died well before the internet came oh, along. Thank God. But now you got the internet, and those encyclopedia yes. companies are are history. But uh, so okay, so you're you're the professor here of economics. So that means uh, you studied economics. I know you got your doctorate. At MIT. Yep. I did. And uh, normally you think MIT, you think physics, you think uh, Yeah, you want me to biology. build something for you, fix your, yeah. fix your car or something. You know, that's your only way what you think of. But MIT has amazing economics departments where Paul Samuelson was yep. and, uh, and a, b- a bunch of other great Okay, great okay, okay. So, okay. So you don't a, have to— It was a good You don't uh, have to defend— your education, okay. <laughs> so at, you're with the Obama administration, and you became uh, the chairman of the Board of Economic the Advisors, Council of Economic, Council Advisors, of Economic yeah. Advisors, and that's a big deal, right? It, you're it advising be, the it president. It depends if the president listens to you. Oh, so yeah, it can't be that big a deal now. If you correct. Right. If you look at this <laughs> administration, they, they demoted it out of the cabinet. For a long time, it was well. You know, it must, in the well, it must be a great job now to be a chairman of the Fed. Oh, I thought you were going to say to be the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. No. Now is the job to want. Yeah, chairman of the Fed. This is a, kind of a scary moment in my tiny world. You know, the, the you economics know what is world. It, it, it's a scary moment in the world. 
Yeah, but, but for for a lot of reasons. But on this, this thing with the Fed, that the president of the United States declared the head of the Fed a, quote, a dope and said he was an enemy of the state. Uh, you know, who's the bigger enemy of the United States, the head of China or the or head of the Fed? Uh, it's, it's bonkers. Nothing like this has ever happened. I yeah. said, I had a friend who said, wasn't Alexander Hamilton secretary of the Treasury and he was killed in a duel? So, okay, fine. Except for that, okay. except for Alexander Hamilton getting shot, this nothing like this has happened, and that's well, we we just had, a creepy moment. I, I had Walter Mondale uh, last week, and and uh, we had a discussion. Is there any president who's been a worse human being than this <laughs> one? And we we tried to go through it, and <laughs> that counts. That counts. What? There's like 14 of them owned slaves. I mean, it was like, that's exactly yeah. where we didn't go, and I I feel bad about that because I thought about it later, and I went, wait a minute, anybody who owns slaves you you know you could say on an absolute scale is worse yeah, that ought to be the worst than but, than trump but he's, in a way he's giving them a run for the money you know what i think you can't every person is an individual and you can't rank them Let, let's talk about some stuff we we did uh communicate via uh, email about uh some uh, issues that i wanted to talk about and then you you, you want to talk about corporate power and i kind of like talking about uh, corporate power, that's like a big issue in this campaign. It, could, it definitely could be. Um, and it certainly is in the Democratic in the, in the, uh, Among the Democrats primaries. and in the backdrop, policy backdrop, that you know we could just cut taxes, $2 trillion for corporations when they already had the, the highest profit levels of oh, profit and, that and they the ever had. And the deficit next year will be a trillion dollars. Will explode because of that. You know, yeah. in large measure, but the wrinkle that I think is kind of interesting. So I, I find interesting when our politics and policy begin arguing about something that's also a point of contention and argument within the economic research within the economic profession. Well, and I think this, that's kind of always the case, isn't it? Not always. Mm. A lot of times there'll be things that all the economists agree, oh, we should never do that, but they do it anyway, well, and, okay. and, vi- and vice versa. Okay, to me, but, the the argument now, and you said corporate power, that's what you yeah. put, and it feels to me that just a very basic problem that we have now and have had for quite a while is is corporate power, and that is that the government in many ways is captured, that the Congress is captured by corporate interests. It's gotten worse because of Citizens United. It's gotten worse because of a lot of things, uh, and the courts are now captured. So th- th- this power, it goes to a rigged economy. Why has there been such a significant and detectable increase in the concentration of of ownership yeah. in so many industries. Wealth inequality. And, and so it's wealth inequality across people. But, but if you just go look at business after business, there has been what seems to be concentration. a concentration and a reduced amount of competition uh, between companies. This is something I was on the Judiciary Committee. Yes. So I was uh, very active in antitrust and 
was very, uh, especially uh, media stuff, media uh, concentration. And so I was very often just alone. Uh, I remember when Comcast uh, wanted to buy Time Warner Cable? Yeah, everybody bought everything, and they scale them up, the airlines, the cable companies. Some of these were, they were kind of at the vanguard almost. So the mega conglomerate media companies, that was a controversy that in a way predated or was, was one of the more obvious industries. That's happened all over the place. It wasn't just in media, from diabetes clinics to airlines to industrial companies, services companies, in a whole bunch of areas you've seen this happen. And, and, and uh, in tech. And, it, and then, and that, then now in tech. And now you got, and now you got in, in tech. And Facebook and, and Google. And in, in each of those cases, the, kind of the argument among the economists mm-hmm. is, why did this happen? Is that just old-fashioned monopoly? that they're, they're getting market power and their customers are hurt and workers no. are hurt because, the, because they can afford not to pay the workers and they can afford to not innovate? Or is it from technology and the reason that Google maintains this huge market share, Facebook huge market share, is because they're doing a better job well, it, than anybody else. Those are different industries. I mean, yes. tech is different yes. from everybody else in, in a way. Because, and this is interesting because Bork came here, right? Bork yeah, he was here. Yep. And he was key in writing about antitrust. And I, my understanding is that he really changed how people viewed antitrust, how the courts viewed it. I think that's right. Now he, the you think that's being an right. economist, you, didn't you get a doctorate? Yeah, but not in law. So that's in the law part on the economic about, you wanted, side. You wanted to talk there about antitrust. Yes, there are numerous economists <laughs> from the and looking at antitrust. They invented the law and economics movement, or at least the so-called Chicago School of Law and Economics, mm-hmm. and it was aggressively, almost to the caricatured extreme of laissez-faire and the view was companies will sort it out they'll do in the end what's the most efficient thing and that has had a tremendous influence on the judiciary they had summer camps you know where they teach them law and economics i i think that the pendulum swung so far that now that contributed a lot to this thing that, that, that I'm saying. If you look at the concentration of ownership, it's very high. Profit rates depend how you measure them, but they look about as high as they've ever been in U.S. history. And the labor share is the lowest that it's ever been as a share of national income. Workers' share of total well, national thank income God is the lowest the, ever. The business roundtable has just come out with this uh, latest – thing about what corporations have to be now and that was jamie diamond and all yes. of them i guess two more than just shareholder value maximizers yeah and yeah. i completely believe them yeah i <laughs> i mean uh they're basically saying you know we used to and this is kind of a milton friedman argument 100 percent milton friedman argument, yeah which that they is should just make money, make money. 
Yeah. The more money we make, the better for everybody because we make more money. And uh, that's, that's how it works. That's how capitalism works. That's how it's supposed to work. And now the uh, Business Roundtable has put out this thing and it's saying like, you know what, from now on, starting like today, we're going to, uh, you know, we're, we're going to value our customers. They're, they're, we're going to invest in our employees. We're going to um, dealing ethically with suppliers. Now, I love that because that just assumed it used to be, like just before this came out, yes, we deal unethically with suppliers. I mean, only if we it, have to. Yeah, you know. The, 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 look, the thing is, this <laughs> if it helps, this profit, goes back. You listen. All that matters is your shareholders, and I'm telling you, if it benefits the shareholders to deal unethically with your suppliers, or for that matter, pretty much anyone, anyone else. Lie, gonna, cheat, steal, we're whatever. We're going to do that. that. That was an unfortunate. But that was yesterday. That, that was the unfortunate. <laughs> that was the unfortunate wording. I guess I would. Uh, oh, call it. I don't think but so. Look, I, I'm. <laughs> I think it's good and healthy if they at least pretend start to do the this. dialogue, and if if they only pretend to do it, I think that'll become clear within. Within days, 10, if not months, you know, it's, it's not going to take long to, to to determine that. Okay, well. but at least they're thinking about something more than just. They're, I think they, it buys until least, Christmas. They're at least sheepish <laughs> until Christmas. That's a good point. Well, that's um, what they got. Now, let's but, you talk. Know, I yeah. kind of think that goes back to this issue of how can they get away with that? Okay, so did something change that allows them to deal unethically with? suppliers <laughs> it, that that it didn't exist 50 years ago all the same monetary incentives would have been there 50 years ago what you know, what changed and i think you kind of would have to tell yourself that there's a certain air of plausibility that if they can't go anywhere else if your supplier doesn't can't doesn't supply to anybody else you you grow figs and, you know, the fig Newtons are the big, you know, biggest buyers of figs or something. What are you going to what are you going to do? Go to the fig Newmans? You know, the, the, that's the the competitor. And the smaller is the competitor. Um, well, the less it's choice like you have. Walmart. Say Walmart. Yeah, if Walmart gets bigger and bigger and is the buyer and they start shaving you, squeezing you. Now the big thing is the payment terms. So you give them the supplies. And they say, oh, we're going to take 120 days to pay you. And, and you're the supplier. And, you, you know, can you live for 120 days without being paid? Um, sometimes they're just counting on you to go broke. Now, they, is, they, is Walmart part of this? Uh, are they signatories to this business roundtable? They're table? in the business roundtable. The business uh-huh. roundtable is a collection of Major CEOs, so that's a for real business or organization. It'd be interesting to talk to one of the uh, suppliers and see if that has changed. Yeah, right. I agree. Wouldn't it? Yeah, small businesses and others. You know, who are the contractors? Yeah. Look, I I applaud. I think it's great if they're thinking outside just the normal conventional way because <laughs> okay. I think that was backward. Right. I, I, right. I I think they 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 had. 
adopted positions that were kind of self-defeating. So as I used to say in the Obama administration, they would come out heavily against any kind of regulations. And I said, look, the, the lesson of the financial crisis and the lesson of the huge oil spill in the Gulf and some of the other lessons should have been it doesn't make you anti-markets to be for stronger rules of the road because it was precisely the ripping up the rules of the road that led to such extremeness of the pendulum swinging too far. We can't trust the information. The banks are putting out information. The highest interest rates charged, the lowest trust, were banks lending and borrowing from other banks. Because they knew perfectly well. They were like, hey, we know what we're doing with our books, so we're not going to trust what you give us. If the, if the consumers and investors and everyone in the economy can't trust the information, then the, the system breaks down. People start and pulling it, their money out. The credit and, rating agencies. And the credit rating oh agencies. God. All of this stuff spirals in. So that's why I say some financial regulation is actually good, is better for the market than moving to no regulation. It saved capitalism. If, if it saved capitalism twice. Every time you have a financial crisis, we get into this situation that there's massive amounts of fraud, and we would have been doing better had we had more aggressive regulation. And if you take the oil spill in the Gulf, okay, great. The oil companies were able to lobby previous administrations and get the rules so loosened and the inspections so reduced that they could make, in the short run, tremendous money on offshore oil. And also talking about capture. Talk about capture. capture Because the regulators there were literally sleeping with the industry. (laughs) I don't know the sort of details, but I'm going to trust you on that. But look, that, that regulatory capture... Is, is a real thing that people who are the regulators, they're not paid very well, and so they're angling to get jobs in exactly. the industries that they're regulating, and they want to get noticed by them. But for BP, are they better off because they got all the regulations loosened, which then led them to have a giant oil spill, and they're on the hook for billions of dollars, much less all the environmental damage, et cetera? In my view, they weren't. Now, they you were, can screw yeah. it up. You can overregulate. You can you can pass dumb regulations. For, I'm, I'm not. Disputing and that's that. also done. And that has also been done many times. But the worldview that says always and everywhere we should just get rid of government involvement, government standards, rules of the road. No, it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous. Yes. And to the extent that the business roundtable is saying that, then. Well, yeah. good. And we'll, we'll good. See. Yeah, good. We will we see. We will see. Do they carry it out? The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe 
würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Okay, let's talk about uh, what's going on now with uh, the president of the United States and uh, with China and with trade. This last week seemed to be just an odd week. I mean, the president was really acting crazily, I think. I think so, too. That one Friday, that was about the craziest day in a long time. Part of the understanding the presidency when you're the president is to be very careful about what you say so as not to affect the markets. About what you say so as not to affect the markets, but also so as to maintain the credibility of the White House and the president. So all the time (laughs) I was in the White House— The utmost, I cannot even emphasize the level of care that if there was something that was to be an official statement from the White House or from the president, layers of eyes checking it don't say anything that is going to undermine the credibility of the president. Because as Paul Volcker, my my old mentor that, that I work with, as he always said, when it comes to a crisis, the only asset you have is your credibility. You have nothing else. And well, uh, the, these, these <laughs> statements by the president, I cannot understand a world in which they're the literally saying, don't pay any attention. The best that can be said of these statements is, don't pay any attention to what the president says. He says stuff all the time. But uh, the, that, that's a completely different universe so from what some, I'm used to. At some moment, it could come to a point where, at this crisis, time of crisis, the world turns its eyes to President Donald Trump. <laughs> it's already funny. It's already funny. And, and like, see, how sad is that? Yeah. That becomes the joke. If I just said, it's a crisis, the world turns to President Trump for guidance, <laughs> everyone would start laughing. What does it mean that that? has become a punchline. Now, 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 could it be, and I, I think I know the answer to this, could it be that he is just crazy like a fox? That China has, we, has treated us like chumps uh, for, for decades now, and that somebody, uh, th- this has been just allowed to happen because they steal our intellectual property, when, when uh, the, this, this is cybersecurity... I'm threatening to blow everything up, and I'm and I'm and I'm blowing some stuff up, um, but it's because I'm I'm getting the job done. I I don't think I I don't think that's accurate, um, and I think a couple of things. One, on the facts, it's, he's he's not right. We have at various times gotten the Chinese to change their behaviors to stop doing things that are hurting us. So 
But have as they you stopped know, yeah, taking well, the well, intellectual property well, of, well, of let me, corporations? Let me give you a different. Let me give you a different example. Yeah. <laughs> and then well, let's talk, <laughs> then let's think about the intellectual property. For multiple decades, our biggest beef with China was the constant devaluation of their currency. Mm-hmm. And the argument, should we label a currency manipulator? And we're back and forth. We got China to stop devaluing its currency. And the way we did that is we got all our allies together, all of whom were upset about it. We went to China with specific demands, and we said, here are your behaviors, and you're going to need to stop doing these behaviors, or else collectively all of us are going to do X, Y, and Z to you. We did this behind the scenes, and the Chinese stopped devaluing their currency. So that seems like the secret there. That seems like the secret sauce. Is getting the entire international That's one part is get get your allies. And the other part is have in mind some specific things. Here's what we want you to stop doing. Okay, so if you decide that intellectual property violations is the number one priority, when we could go through why they chose currency above intellectual property violations in the past. But, you know, it's kind of a technical discussion. But let's say you decide intellectual property is your number one. Now go to the allies who you would think they have intellectual property too. Are they on our side? Of course they're not on our side because we threatened a trade war with every single one of them. We threatened a trade war with Europe and then with Germany specifically with Canada, with Mexico, with Japan, with Korea, back to Europe, back to NAFTA. Now we're threatening China. And as I say, I actually When we say we, you mean Trump. Yeah, Trump and the United States, our administration, the United States. And I actually think that it is more likely that China goes to the WTO, files a grievance against the United States, and gets our own allies to join them, China, in trying to pursue a case against us than to join us against China, which is crazy. Uh, you would have never thought that you would say that about our allies. But I actually think it's, that, that's pretty likely at this point. So that would be considered counterproductive. <laughs> By me. I, maybe somebody else thinks that's, that's achieving something. And so we got no allies and we have no specific demands. And so we're literally so he's just, putting a giant tax on American consumers, right. which we, the American people, are paying all of those tariffs for an amorphous thing that he says, I'm beating up China because they're stealing our intellectual property. But he's not giving China any way to solve this. He's not saying change a law, buy our pharmaceuticals at U.S. prices. That's one of the issues. Stop taking our movies, whatever. He's not making any demands. He's just piling on tariffs, some of which are the, the, all tariffs are terrible. Tariffs on suppliers and intermediate goods, things that are used in U.S. manufacturing are especially terrible. Mm-hmm. And, and we're doing tons of those, steel, aluminum. So every job you think you're saving in steel, you're losing multiple jobs in the steel-using industries, of which there are many more than there are steel-producing. 
we're not making specific demands, and the punishment that we're enacting is one that's harming us just as much as it's harming them. You know what's interesting? That's an obvious distinction that I haven't heard from anybody, which is that he's doing this without any specific agenda whatsoever (laughs) communicated to them. And and I think it's because either he in his own mind or with some of the advisors who remain, most of the kind of voices of reason, I'd call it, have left administration to the extent that you viewed they were voices of Mattis. And that's Mattis, it. and on the economic side, the people that remain are a much higher share of uh, kind of bomb throwers who who want confrontation with China. They, one of the one of the economic advisors now wrote a book called "Death by China," and and uh, and they're and how, encouraging how the president in to confront. I don't know, look. <laughs> I, I, I've observed these negotiations from afar. Obviously, I'm not. The world expert at negotiating with the Chinese. I mean, I was at the strategic and economic dialogue meetings. Uh, my observation of the Chinese is that the one thing that will never work is public humiliation and confrontation in which you say, you, President Xi, you must wallow on the dirt and say, the U.S. was right and we're sorry and we'll give you everything you want. Unfortunately, I mean, that's the the that's biggest arrow wants. in his quiver. I mean that that that's what he that's what he knows. That's what he does. That's what he knows. He President Trump. Yeah. That's what he knows. So that's why I say in his mind, I think his thing is, we'll so humiliate and confront the Chinese with without a strategy, without a specific demand, without allies, whatever. But we'll just make it so unpleasant that they're bound to come in and surrender. But in my view, that is very unlikely to, to succeed, and therefore it's very likely to drive— if we just keep on this escalating path, that's very likely to send us both into a recession. Well, we'll see who's right, uh, President Trump or Austin Goolsby. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'm not—the thing I, is— I'm betting on you. If you look at you. Europe, if you look at what happened in Europe, or you look at what happened— with the new NAFTA, or if you look at Korea, or you, or you look at Japan, they each had the feature that President Trump threatened bombastically. I'm this. I'm going to blow it up. I'm going to do, do all of this stuff. And I don't know if the president's business supporters called him up behind the scenes, or somebody got to them and said, "Like you can't do this. You know, our our, our suppliers. You're going to wreck manufacturing in the U.S. if you do this. So find a way out." They basically backed off of the tariffs for nothing. For in, in the case of Europe, they backed off the tariffs because they agreed to seek an agreement in the future to reduce <laughs> tariffs to zero. But the, there was nothing. They didn't agree to anything. The case of NAFTA and the new USMCA or, you know, whatever right. we're, we're going to call it, they basically took NAFTA took a few provisions from the TPP, which Canada and Mexico and the U.S. had already agreed to. All three of them had agreed to those provisions. They just took those and they went to Canada and Mexico and said, hey, would you be okay with those? And they were like, yeah, we already were okay with that. Great. They stapled that to NAFTA. They called it the new NAFTA. So, again, they did very little. 
and backed away from the tariffs. In Japan, in Korea, in each of these cases, they found a way to publicly declare victory without doing the damage to the U.S. economy. That's what I hope they could do with China. <laughs> okay. That are like, look, fine, call it a victory. You know, get out front and call it a parade. But so far, that's not working. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Okay, I want to move from trade to our economy. We were talking about it a little earlier about uh, just inequality in, in wealth and income. And it's just been going in one direction. Absolutely right. And obviously, <laughs> the shape of the tax cut was completely ridiculous considering that I, I everybody, that's absolutely right. everybody says that's, has, has recognized that as a problem, I think. I don't know who doesn't. You know, uh, Paul Wellstone always said we all do better when we all do better. Yeah, right. And I, I, I just think that's so true. When we have a strong middle class, when we have people who have money to spend, you know, when they have money to buy a house, to buy cars, yep. then the economy does well. Now, you know, I was born in 1951, post-war United States, and our economy was just doing great. Part of it was Europe had been destroyed, Japan had been destroyed, so that gave us a little bit of an advantage there. But, but this lasted a long time. Yeah. And labor was strong, and antitrust was strong. Wages were growing. Growth rate was high. Productivity growth was high. Taxes were, were high. Taxes were high. Taxes were yep. high on the people at the top. Yeah. The rates were high. Yeah. For sure. They went over to look, we're going to pay back World War II debt. I mean, they, they literally had top rates of over 90% because they felt like if you're going to fight a huge war, debt's going to go up in the country, you should pay for it. Uh, we then fast forward, we fight a few wars without that attitude. I guess the, the, the causes of the rising inequality are a little contentious in the in the economic research. But suffice to say, there are pretty clearly some fundamentals in the economy that are pushing toward more inequality, like Global. the returns to skill mm-hmm. have, have gone way up. The return, if, you, if you're a knowledge worker, if you know how to use a computer, wages have done on average pretty well. If you're a physical worker, lower skill worker, it's been a tough multiple decades. The issues of globalization, of technological change and automation. All of these things have been pushing to a more winner-take-all society. What I don't get is how, in the face of that, and we can argue about which was bigger. Was it globalization bigger? Was the returns to education bigger? What, 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 What was the cause? But 
nobody disputes that that's been happening. So how do you turn around and say, you know what let's do? Let's cut $2 trillion out of the tax code to pile on to that. And let's go in a world where the returns to education are that high and one good ticket up for somebody at the bottom to get into the middle class is education. Let's go cut all the financial aid and let's go eliminate food stamps and kick people off the rolls and let's do a series of things which strike me as drives it totally the wrong way. And that's how we should be framing the selection. In 2020. Yeah. Well, look, the, I, don't see, I still don't understand, and hopefully it will come, but I don't understand the following, why this isn't every time a Democrat running for president gets up to speak, does not say, Donald Trump cut taxes by $2 trillion unpaid for for high-income people and big corporations, and in his budget, he proposed cutting simultaneously hundreds of billions of dollars from Social Security and Medicare. He literally proposed it. This is not, this is not Democrats going off on a flight of fancy and saying, oh, someday they're going to come here and they're going to try to cut your Social Security and your Medicare. They, he Go look up the budget. You can just look it up online. They literally are proposing cutting and, it because they say we don't have the money. Sometimes, and the reason we don't have the money is because they cut $2 trillion out of it. Yeah, it, it, it's funny how we don't have the money only comes up when it's talking about making sure that people who don't make a lot of money have something. Yeah. Investing yeah, in that's education, true. invest. That's but it, that's it doesn't right. come up when you're when they cut the taxes. When you're cutting the taxes, right. it just doesn't come up, and it comes right. up. I've had so many experiences where I've had something that would help people, help poor people, help lower middle class or working people, and I had, especially when Obama was president, and they would say, "Okay, what's the pay for?" The pay for is you have to get the money from somewhere else. You have to make a cut in something else, or you have to find revenue, yep. a new revenue by getting rid of some tax break for something that actually doesn't make any sense anymore or never did. But now you add to next year a trillion dollar deficit. Just yes, yeah, in a boom. Look, the. There was a trillion-dollar deficit as President Obama comes in because we're in the worst recession of our lifetimes. Yeah. And that drives the deficit way up. And you know, tax revenue goes down because they're not making as much money. And you there need a all stimulus. These spend, all these automatic spendings, programs, food stamps, whatever, and, and you have a stimulus. Um, so that's why the deficit goes up and then – it comes way down, so it's cut more than in half by the time Obama's leaving. There has never been a non-recession, non-war time like this where, where the deficit has, has, has done this. And I, these I'm are not, the people look, these not, are the people who kept saying the debt, the debt, the debt. The debt. It's almost like it wasn't on the level, huh? <laughs> but the, 
at the time. Nothing's on the, the no, friggin' course, level exactly. with them. I mean, Jesus. But so how about how about administration? I thought we were t- seriously having a conversation about debt, the long run fiscal balance facing the United States. What are the choices that we're going to make? How much from taxes? How much from spending? I was naive. We were all naive to think that it was about the content when when we're having that conversation. Well, I mean, think about Merrick Garland. Yeah. No, they hold him up. They're going to come up with some rationale. And you saw yeah. Senator McConnell say, if we get another opening, we will 100% yeah, he's asked put that. him through. He's asked that, and he said yes, and then he laughs. Yep. You know 100 times more about the, the judiciary and the judicial politics uh, than I do. I, I know nothing about that. I do think in the economic sphere, like in the judicial sphere, like in the legislative sphere, we have broken the, the sacred bonds of trust, let's call it. That's, they were more than social norms. They were kind of the, this is how our democracy functions and works. And in case after case, They've just broken. And Mitch that. McConnell is a big, big, and big, Mitch huge McConnell part of that. Seems like a major part of that. And at the Senate, at the White House, they've they've done things that we never would have conceived of doing. And if somebody had done them, you'd be like, that person's career is got is going to be over. And now the question is, okay, let's say Donald Trump once once he's out of there, I'm presuming that. If, if defeated, he will leave the White House. Let's say he's defeated, He'll, and they he, get him out of there. Yes. Can and we go back? Can we go back? Be, or are we, is it like the end of the Roman Republic, where one, then they start killing each other, and then it spirals, it keeps spiraling, and they kind of never well, went back. that's my fear, even Republic about putting gone. him in prison. You know, if you prosecute him for obstruction of justice, then right? Then they're going to come prosecute the next person, you know, yeah. and then we're on that chain. That's kind of what I'm saying. But does a Democratic president pardon Donald Trump? I, I don't see it, but, uh, you know, maybe they do to spare the It was one thing nation. for Gerald Ford. I don't, yeah. No, and it was, that made Gerald Ford super unpopular, the, the doing that. Yeah, but ultimately, in a certain way— you look back and go, like, maybe that was the right thing to do. It's not yes, good to see. Yes, but all I'll say is this. Again, you're totally outside my expertise. I know nothing about it. Well, but I will, observe, I will observe the following from the discussion of the grand bargain in 2011, which makes me extremely hesitant for a Democrat to be in the let's be the bigger people and pardon and and just go back to, to the old ways. And that is, President Obama, at great peril to himself, his own supporters, uh, and, and it may have included you, were extremely upset that he even entertained the possibility, the discussion of a grand bargain. That is to say that we would raise some taxes and cut some entitlements and cut some spending and do some grand bargain to reduce the long-run deficit. And President Obama said to Mitch McConnell and to the Republicans, look, our thing is there must be more tax revenue, and it's going to be tax revenue on high-income people. Take the list 
of what you want to do to entitlements and rank it. What, what's your number one thing? Like, what, what, would the, what would the bargain be? What, what do you want? And what they wanted was not to propose anything. What they wanted was for Barack Obama to propose entitlement cuts so that they could then go out and demonize in the election and say, Barack Obama's proposing entitlement cuts. When the, the whole premise of the grand bargain was he wanted high-income tax increases, they wanted the entitlement cuts. Well, we if wanted you to get rid this, of the Bush. If the Democrats pardoned Donald Trump, the very next election the Republicans would run on, the Democrats pardoned Donald Trump, and do, don't you remember how bad he was? And they would run on, it's a corrupt system. And it's all rigged. They not all take care of each party. other. Exactly. Not unlike the Tea Party. You would have thought the 2008 financial crisis and the massive increase in unemployment and the massive destruction of household wealth and the trauma of that recession would have convinced everyone that the worldview espoused of massive deregulation and massive uh, letting the banks do what they want and cut taxes for high-income people, and that will trickle down to everyone else. You would have thought that worldview would at least be dormant for a long time. But no, we're not even two years in. The Tea Party reinvents itself, reinvent the Republican Party to say, well, we were against the Bush administration just as much. Bush, Obama, they're all the same. We're now something totally different. Um, and, and I'm kind of nervous about that, about Trumpism. You know, if you look back to McCarthyism, the, the optimistic case is McCarthyism was a thing where the fever broke. And if you look back now, there really aren't, no, nobody's like, oh, I wish we could go back to McCarthyism. It, now it's an insult. And I think that will happen with Trumpism. I don't, I don't think that the American character is not this. I don't think the American character is compatible with viewing this experiment in Trumpism as a positive. That, that kind of, that level of cruelty and, and that, you know, we're, we don't like immigration, so we're going to... Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Take babies away from their mothers. You know, we're going to lock kids in cages. We're going to, that's not us. And so I think there is an optimism. I have an optimism that eventually, as with McCarthyism, as with some things that we're embarrassed about to look back, that we will be embarrassed about this. But the other part that makes me nervous about that is the Republican Party is to blame for Trumpism. They have enabled it. They have not stopped it. They have not opposed it. He has massive support among Republicans. When the fever breaks, I think there's a decent chance that the Republicans reinvent their brand and say, we were against Trumpism all along. And it was the Washington, D.C., both the parties, they were in bed with each other. Aren't you sick of the parties? That's why you should vote Republican. And if they are able to do that again, um, the way that they did with the Tea Party and the financial crisis, then shame on us. That's a grim way to close. So I'm going <laughs> to. Well, we might as well close that way. Um, thank you. It's awesome. great to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Anytime. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Leo Kotke for this uh, beautiful, beautiful theme. Beautiful theme. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Mm-hmm.